This episode is brought to you by the AIA Film Challenge. Let architecture inspire your next short for a chance to win $5,000 in a screening at the Architecture and Design Film Festival in New York. The fourth annual AIA Film Challenge invites filmmakers to team with architects and share stories of architects and civic leaders designing a better future for our communities. Register today at AIAFilmChallenge.org. That's AIAFilmChallenge.org. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. I'm John Fusco. And we are here with you on August 2nd, 2018, or June 63rd, for those of us in denial about how fast summer is going by. On this week's show, what's the best way to distribute your short film? Are the film workers of Hollywood gearing up for a strike? And seriously, what is going on with MoviePass? As always, we'll also bring you news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hello out there from Brooklyn, New York. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. And we're going to kick it off with one of our favorite topics of the year, a movie pass. Yeah, it's weird because I feel like two of the things I've been most passionate about this summer have like collided head on and sort of like the Higgs boson particle, I think it's called. What is that? The God particle? Higgs boson. Higgs boson? Walter Murch made a documentary about it. Called Particle Fever? Yeah. And they collided and now clearly Tom Cruise is going to come out on top because, I mean, it's Tom Cruise and he's an action superstar. But So, it's, so it's, Tom Cruise collided with the Higgs boson particle. No, yeah. I think George Lucas collided with Mandy. No, right? no these that? are not the two things this year. Oh, okay, okay. I thought those was were the I two things. About, oh, I was passionate about You're George Lucas. That, that was spring. Right? That was spring. I'm Sorry. talking about the summer. It's just the summer. Oh, the summer. Summer. I've been Sorry. super passionate about Movie Pass and Mission Impossible and Anti. Turns out, well, that's like a that's, that's like annual. a year round. That's annual. Probably, yeah, yeah, that's okay. like a year round. Maybe like 15, 16 year addiction at this point. But um, back to Mission Impossible and Movie Pass, they have collided and had this sort of massive reaction and movie pass is coming out on the bottom. So let's get into it. Early subscribers to movie pass really have been given the greatest deal of all. In addition to being allowed to see unlimited monthly movies at what some would say is an absurdly cheap and unrealistic fee, they now get to follow one of the most dramatic and entertaining sagas of a company trying not to go bankrupt ever. It's like watching a swimmer in an inner tube being tugged underwater by a great white, only to free float serenely for a while before being tugged back under, arms flailing, and updates to company policy. Well, in this case, it seems like the great white shark is actually the summer blockbuster. If also, you... we're learning today that John Fusco is a poet. It was beautiful. I'm a very good writer, I think, as well, <laughs> as, well as a mathematician and hentai addict. Well, in this case, as I said... If you try to get into Mission Impossible over the weekend with a movie pass, because, you know, if you didn't, what are you doing with your life? I didn't try to get in because I'm currently rewatching all of the, the Mission Impossibles so I can, you know, get up to speed again. Anyways, if you tried to get in over the weekend with a movie pass and were stunned to find that not only could you not get in, but seemingly every theater on your app was mysteriously not taking requests, well, you weren't the only one. Reality seems to be sinking in as we come to realize there will never be a world perfect enough where a six-film Tom Cruise action franchise and an affordable monthly subscription film service can coexist in harmony. Like it or not, MoviePass is dying. 
So would you say that getting in this weekend with MoviePass was an impossible mission? I was thinking about making that joke, but it was way too easy. Right. No. But tell us about the fallout. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the one. Thank you. So the moment that many people realized this, as I mentioned, was on Thursday evening when many went to check their phones to get into a film, only to find that the service was entirely down. At first, the company posted on Twitter that they were looking into a tech issue that was preventing users from checking into movies. It turns out that the actual issue was that MoviePass had completely run out of money and could quite literally not function and had to quickly borrow $5 million in order to get its service back online. The weird thing is that MoviePass must have known that they were about to run out of money and go through a service interruption, but instead tried to sell it as a tech issue. It just adds to a growing list of shady choices from a company whose shoddy business strategy never stood a chance in the first place. I'm being kind of harsh right now, but it's, you know, (laughs) I love MoviePass, but it doesn't make any sense. Let's be honest. The service seemed to ride itself for a few days, giving CEO Mitch Lowe a chance to explain to his customers what was going on in a service update. That didn't go well either. Here's what part of that service update said, quote, As we continue to evolve the service, certain movies may not always be available in every theater on our platform. This is no different than other in-home streaming options that often don't carry the latest shows or movies that may be available on other services. For example, you can't ever find Game of Thrones on Netflix, nor is Season 4 of Schitt's Creek available there yet. Here at MoviePass, we have strived to make every movie in theaters available to you as a part of your subscription, and peak pricing has allowed and will continue to allow us to do so. You know, I think my biggest beef with this so far is that of all the shows in the world, the one he used as an example was Schitt's Creek? Maybe he's a Schitt's Creek fan. Maybe he's up Schitt's Creek right now. Well, he is. Since most (laughs) MoviePass users are not idiots, they saw this as a Pretty shitty analogy, but that so-called evolution of the service was further detailed a few days later. It includes jacking up the prices from $9.99 to $14.95 per month over the next 30 days, as well as limiting access to nearly all Hollywood blockbusters within their first two weeks of release. That means first-run movies opening on 1,000-plus screens will not be viewable for MoviePass subscribers. That's probably the worst part than the tiny $5 increase per month, I would say. Sunday, another service interruption occurred, shutting off access to every non-e-ticket theater in the United States. For reference, there are a total of 211 theaters nationwide that are supporting e-ticketing. So I think I read that they went from supporting 91% of theaters to 3% of theaters within uh, a week. How bad is it financially for MoviePass? In October, shares of the company reached a high of $32.90. On Monday, that stock dropped a staggering 60%, closing at $0.80 per share. In just five trading sessions deadline reports, it has lost more than 95% of its value. So the end may be very nigh, but we still have MoviePass to thank for the good times and disrupting the film exhibition industry in a way never seen before. We won't be so bold as to give this an RIP obituary yet, but something has got to change, and these new policy changes don't seem like a true step in the right direction. To add insult to injury, it looks like AMC's version of MoviePass, A-List, is doing really, really well. Uh, They've racked up 175,000 subscribers in just five weeks and would be the heir apparent if MoviePass were to go under. As Sean Baker put it in a tweet earlier this week, Looks like AMC's $19.95 a month A-list plan will be the VHS to MoviePass's Betamax. I have to say, two days ago, I 
canceled my movie pass uh, just because I did look up online some places to theaters to use that normally would be accepted, and it just says no showtimes available. And I'm still, I guess, a member until November, which is when I became one last year. But I officially canceled it. And also for us, too, being in New York City, having like a lot of these repertory theaters that accepted those. So if you wanted to go to the Quad or Metrograph or even Lincoln Center, you could use MoviePass even there. So for those 35 millimeter screenings of older films and things of that nature, it was accepted. And they're going to be hurt a lot as well. Um, just that's a little bit more of a local kind of reaction. But that's something also that I used it for. And now you won't be able to take it. I think even MoMA started to uh, yeah, accept it. There's a ton of places that accept it in New York City or did accept it. And I think you're experiencing what I was just talking about where, like, you know, you open your app and suddenly every theater that you could have gotten into, you can't get into. Yeah. Just, like, in a matter of, I guess it was, like, hours. It was just a switch. Totally, yeah. Um, And whether that's coming back or not, I guess, remains to be seen. But that was the big advantage of having a movie pass over, like, an AMC A-list card because, you know, in New York you have all these different options. But in places that aren't New York and you just have one AMC theater – why would you like go through the trouble of having to deal with all this bullshit that MoviePass has been pulling for the past, I don't know, three months now? Um, just use your AMC A-list yeah. instead. And the convenience of MoviePass, how you could normally go to a theater and just go to any showtime you wanted if it was available. Now they're saying, you know, check in advance to see if that showtime will be available. Mm-hmm. But you can't get the ticket until you're a certain proximity away from the theater, and it just seems like more And the surcharge and, and yeah. whatnot. I mean... Using the AMC A-list thing, you can reserve tickets as far advance and you as you want. You can get into any screening you want. If you want, like you know, you can get into IMAX screenings. You can get into movies that have are just coming out because now you're not going to be able to get into a movie that just came out for two weeks with Movie Pass. And uh, the other unfortunate side effect of this is that you know people who signed up for the yearly subscription are just going to basically lose. Uh, I guess like nine, ten bucks for every month that they uh, don't have it after they cancel it. So they'll still be charged for that money. They're not going to get refunded because um, they paid it all up front. Yeah. It's funny sitting back and just listening to you two talk about it that we're sort of complaining about things that we didn't even have as options a year ago. So that is really a disruption in the industry, as you said. Like now things that we started to take for granted <laughs> – that were really huge benefits. We're now like, we don't get that and we don't get that. And, you know, that's how Netflix killed TV because suddenly people were like, wait, I can't watch whatever I want at any time. And I guess that's what, like, Lowe was trying to get to with his um, analogy about, like, Game of Thrones not being on Netflix. He's comparing himself to Netflix. But they're not They're not really Netflix. <laughs> you know, like, it is a different uh, service model. And it re- different requirements for customers as well who have to actually like go out and seek these movies rather than just being at home on the couch. Yeah. You know who really won from this? The critics because of that whole Gotti slam and controversy. Well, the, I think the Gotti thing really kind of that was sparked the beginning things. of the end. It was like, wow, what, the what cement is movie shoes on movie pass, Yeah, all those, so to speak. I keep getting told to see three identical strangers every two days uh, due to the MoviePass app. And I'm like, I can't anymore. Yeah. I can't. So. The other interesting thing, though, is that it looks like even though Mission Impossible did well this weekend, uh, it had like a lower um, turnout, I think, than what was expected or than previous summer blockbusters had had. And it's because of the MoviePass blackout. Kerfuffle. Yeah. Interesting. So 
like you said, exhibitors are going to be hurt by this too. Yeah. Um, now that this disruption has happened, it's a fallout. So if you heard Monday's interview podcast, the two TV editors I had on talked about the insanely long hours expected of editors, and it turned out to be a very timely discussion because of our next headline. So this story took me a minute to wrap my head around, but it affects literally tens of thousands of people in our industry, so I will try to break it down for you. So there are 13 unions that make up a mega union called the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, Moving Picture Technicians, Artists, and Allied Crafts of the United States. Whew. But let's just call it by its acronym, IATSE. 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 Yahtzee has over 140,000 members, and the unions or locals that make up that membership include Local 600, the International Cinematographers Guild, and Local 700, the Editors Guild. Yahtzee's been in contract negotiations on behalf of all of its members with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Let's call them the producers. What they're all trying to agree on are how union members get treated at work, everything from rates to hours to breaks, etc., so in the current negotiations, 12 out of the 13 locals agreed to recommend ratifying a new three-year contract ag agreement to their members. Who was the lucky 13 that went against the grain? The Editors Guild. Because although the contract looked beneficial on its face, a little digging revealed that it wasn't necessarily so fair. For example, IATSE was looking to cement a 10-hour turnaround, meaning there has to be at least 10 hours between work shifts from when one day ends till the next begins. So if you finish one shoot day, you get 10 hours until you have to be on set again. Some of the locals were granted this, but the editor's turnaround was only nine hours. Oh, and it doesn't apply for anyone working on pilots and first season episodics, which these days is where an awful lot of the work is. And by the way, even on features and long-form TV, you would only be given a 10-hour turnaround if you worked two consecutive 14-hour days. Here's another important example. The new contract states that residuals from, quote, new media revenue will go into union members' pension plans. So if something you worked on streams on Netflix or Hulu, you get a little piece of it. Sounds great, right? Except that it's limited to features with budgets over $30 million and longer than 96 minutes. So anyone working on any episodic show, which again is where the majority of new work is, will not get this benefit. So this whole thing is now calling into question the status quo of how unions operate. Usually, the locals band together and the union members fall in line behind their representatives. Now, the Editors Guild has started a grassroots campaign to go against the current negotiations, and members of the other unions whose reps did vote to ratify it are saying, wait a minute, maybe we don't want this. They're speaking out on social media and in comments like this one on a Deadline article about the negotiations. Why are the editors being excluded from the 10-hour turnaround clause? What happened to solidarity among the locals? I don't think anybody should vote to ratify this contract until all locals are being treated equally. Isn't that the point of bargaining collectively? So, this could play out in a lot of different ways. One being that the locals decide to strike to amend the labor agreements, and that could seriously shake up Hollywood. Even if you're strictly indie or working outside of the U.S., this affects all of us because what happens with the unions filters down to the rest of us since they set the standard for what's considered fair treatment and wages in the industry. So, you know, if I'm working on an indie production, I may not be hiring union workers, but I'm still using the kind of union rates and expectations to set what I'm paying folks and what kind of breaks that they'll have and what kind of meals they'll have and that kind of thing. So... 
the old contracts, the existing contracts are going to like their time is winding up exactly at recording time. So we will keep an eye on these negotiations and let you know what happens. Leave it to the editors to find that thing that's wrong with the contract. You know, that's that attention to detail that we, we really should value. And it really did turn things around or, or we'll see. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The editors definitely threw a wrench in the works, but ultimately, you know, they're doing it because they want things to be better for all the locals. And we, we feature a number of call for entries and festival and competition deadlines here at No Film School, both on the site itself and, of course, each week on this very podcast. So stay tuned for that. We try to be as curatorial as possible, eliminating those that don't necessarily fit our readers' interest and or maybe lack legitimacy and sometimes appear a little sketchy. You know, you, you don't know why you have to pitch a film on an island next to a volcano. But we like to think that we're doing a pretty good job bringing to your attention the bestest of the best each week. Uh, however, there are always a number of shady organizations, I thought of ways to describe it, uh, that spring up just to make some money off of entry fees before pulling the plug or not providing anything near what they promised or the quality that you would expect from a similar competition. In a new article by The Hollywood Reporter titled pretty bluntly, uh, Why Are So Many Wannabe Screenwriters Getting Scammed? Those meager opportunities are exposed with first-person accounts of people who have been scammed uh, in one way or another. The article describes, quote, pitch fests are a prime target of critics. Having exploded in the 1990s when the spec script market was at its peak, these gatherings dropped in popularity but appear to be regaining momentum with such deep-pocketed, content-hungry buyers as Netflix and Amazon entering the market. The best known include the Hollywood Pitch Fest, Ken Rotkop's Pitch Mart, Virtual Pitch Fest, and the Great American Pitch Fest. Uh, I think the best legitimate ones are the ones that are mirrored after movie titles, apparently. Uh, Most are based in Los Angeles and New York, but they can also be found in other parts of the U.S. and Canada. Each promises the chance to meet agents, producers, and executives. The reality of many, however, is that the quote-unquote executives are usually low-level operatives dispatched by higher-ups to field pitches that usually go nowhere. Uh, With no power to spend, these junior-level reps are typically paid a small sum along with perks such as restaurant vouchers, end quote. Um, I highly encourage you to check out the entire article uh, that we will link to, and it's also in the print issue of The Hollywood Reporter this week, if you have that, uh, as it goes deep into horror stories of aspiring screenwriters who have spent sometimes, in, in a couple cases, thousands of dollars just for hanging on a dream and having that dream be taken advantage of. They pay to meet people who cannot help them, and some of these screenwriters themselves aren't qualified to meet with them in the first place. So it's just a weird uh, mashup. It's a controversial subject, one The Hollywood Reporter is quick to point out, but thanks to the transparency and outrage that's been expressed online over some of these practices, uh, things may be getting better the further this issue is exposed. Eric, did the article or anything else you read give information for like our listeners about how they tell whether a, a screenwriting contest they, is like good they, or not? Well, they, they do speak with uh, like Franklin Leonard of The Blacklist and certain organizations that are what they consider doing it correctly uh, in that they're not looking – those organizations are not looking to really benefit from you financially or, or things like that. They will – put it up, I think, your screenplay online for a small like submission fee and other things like that. But they do break down how to kind of tell, in a way, ones that will actually be beneficial to you and when ones that are almost convention market scams, if you will, that are like for a quick buck. So what are the, what is the like 
ultimate goal for someone entering one of these pitch fests? Is it to, it, it's just like a. Yeah, it's always like, you know, the promise, the feedback and kind of, you won't be able to, you know, meet these behind closed doors it's individuals. Access, yeah. access, yeah, yeah. And it's not to discredit pitch uh, competitions themselves. There are many festivals that have pitch components to it that are very uh, respectable and, and do help as well. Uh, but this case is specifically about this industry uh, that's been built and taken advantage of that access. Well, so our whole headline section was basically like, people with shady business practices, <laughs> the more you know. Uh, moving on to tech news, Charles Hayne is out shooting a new web series, as we mentioned last week, and we hope it's going very well. But we're still going to bring you a bit of tech news, and this time it's coming from me. After two and a half years at No Film School, I posted my first gear review earlier this week. I've edited a lot of them, of course, but this is one where I went out and did a field test myself with the FreeFly Movi smartphone stabilizer. Now, this is not to be confused with the famous FreeFly Movi Pro, which is a which is the kind of go-to full-sized gimbal. The company, though, claims that it's brought all the tech it developed for the Pro version into a small handheld version for filming with your phone. So other than just stabilize, it can do things like moving time lapses and pans along an A-B path that you set. My general takeaways are that it's going to take a lot more than this tool to make your videos cinematic, as the company claims, but that combined with other tools like moment lenses, you can seriously improve the quality of your mobile films. Also, it's not as easy to use right outside the box as it seems, and it'll take some practice to get all the moves down, so make sure you play with it a bit before shooting something important. The full review is on the site and we'll link to it there. And as an aside, this is a nice chance to shout out the Disposable Film Festival, which was celebrating films made on mobile devices before everyone could do it. And they just had their 10th anniversary last year. So if you're making shorts this way, it's a great place to showcase them and check it out at disposablefilm.com. And some other gear news just really quickly. Following up on last week's show where we talked about Aperture's awesome new Deity microphones, uh, Aperture is widely known for its affordable lights and sort of their innovative designs. Um, we had a great time with them at NAB this year. They really showed off some exciting products for uh, low-budget filmmakers. They also have this new sound division called Deity, and uh, now they're coming out with this really crazy contest where you can basically win enough equipment to start your own rental house. They're calling it the Light Dislocation Contest. So as I said, Aperture has been making a name for itself in the production space with its low-cost, high-quality LED fixtures and other useful gadgets. Now the company is teaming up with Blackmagic, Small HD, Quasar Science, Freefly, and more to bring you this contest with some impressive prizes. It basically includes every light Aperture's ever made, some Deity stuff, some Freefly stuff. You, you should just... Uh, We'll link to the article on this site, and you can check out the full list for yourself because there's too many products to really name right now. All you need to do to enter is make a short film on any topic in a single location and create an accompanying one- to two-minute behind-the-scenes video, plus a floor plan outlining your lighting setups. For more info on the terms and conditions, visit the Aperture Light This Location website or No Film School and enter by the August 24th, 2018 deadline. I love contests like that that have these like very specific parameters for kind of like fun, creative challenges. I was all ready to enter and then I said the lighting plan. Like, oh no, I don't know if I can do that. It is complicated. Uh, short about anything? You Not know? really. You know what else is complicated is that we have, you know, a common term in filmmaking, Aperture. And this company is called Aperture, mm -hmm. and it's not spelled the same. 
FYI, for those of you who may want to look up Apuchur products, it's like... <laughs> I don't think they pronounce it Apuchur, <laughs> though. No, they do. Apuchur. No, they put the poo in Apuchur. It's A-P-U-T-U-R-E, FYI. That's for your information. It's not, not actually FYI, part of how it's spelled. FYI. Yeah. So now, again, without Charles Hayne, we're going to try as as hard as we might to do our own answer to an Ask No Film School question. This time the question comes from Facebook where my pal and filmmaker Stacy Menchel Kussel asked, I'm working on a new film project which showcases both architecture and dance, and I wanted to get some advice about best products and approaches related to drones. So, I reached out to No Film School contributor and my hashtag drone bay, Randall Asulto of Burko Ariel, who is a commercially licensed drone pilot and shooter, to ask for some beginner drone tips. So what advice do you have for Stacy or anyone who's kind of trying to use drones for the first time in a project? Well, uh, first and foremost, I think, um, like using any piece of gear, it's important to become familiar with it. So um, I would advise strongly to get a lot of time practicing with your new piece of gear in a non-live situation so that you know how it behaves and you can kind of um, figure out its nuances and so that you can know how to do what you want it to do when you need it to. So that's kind of basics. That's any piece of gear, but um, especially with something that flies um, and could potentially crash, you want to make sure that you really are familiar with the equipment and know what to expect when you're using it. And I think that brings me to my second point as far as drones. Um, You do need to not only know what you're doing, but... um, You should be working with somebody who is not only trained but also licensed and insured um, so that you can ensure the safety of everybody on the ground and um, the surroundings in which you're going to be filming. Um, There are legal requirements for using drones that do include um, FAA certification as well as um, you're going to need the person you're hiring to shoot for you to be insured, and most insurance companies are only going to insure somebody who does have the proper credentials. So what do you think is important to look for when you're hiring a drone shooter as opposed to just someone who's used to shooting on the ground? Well, I think there's a lot of overlap. Um, Just as you'd hire any DP or shooter, um, you want to see their style and you know, does the work that they've done jive with the kind of work that you want for your project? Are they experienced shooting the kinds of things that you need them to shoot? Um, you know, there are differences shooting, uh, you know, like in this case, there's there's differences working with people, you know, moving in formation versus shooting landscapes. And so um, with anybody that you'd be talking to, it's important to feel confident that they have experience and will be able to get the kinds of shots that you're looking for. So you kind of hinted at this a second ago, but there are all these legal restrictions about where you can and can't drone, and I'd hate for someone like Stacy to get to a location thinking that she can just go ahead and shoot, and it turns out she can't. So how does someone find out where they can and can't shoot? That's a great point, and it's something that is... Um, ultimately the drone operator's responsibility to know and understand. Um, so when I get a request from a potential client or a client that they want to shoot in a given location, um, I will check what are called um, 
sectional maps, which are basically um, aviation maps that show you what kind of airspace the place that you're trying to work is in. And then based on that airspace, it will mean different things to the drone operator. It might mean they cannot operate there. It might mean that they can operate there if they have certain uh, permission. It might mean that they can operate there certain times of day, but not others. So um, your drone operator is trained to know that, and um, it is their responsibility to um, make sure that the airspace that you're asking them to fly in is legal and safe, and if not, it's their job to, you know, report that to you and let you know so that you can make um, a better decision. Another thing that strikes me when we're talking about this is that she probably also wants to make sure that whatever the drone app is shooting, like whatever camera they're shooting with, is going to ultimately match the footage that's being shot on the ground as closely as possible. So is there a way to ensure that that's going to be the case? Sure. So um, when I've worked on projects in the past um, that have been being shot with much larger cameras than are on my drone, like, you know, Reds or Aries or whatever, um, I will usually have a conversation with the DP about what they're looking for and um, explain the uh, technical um, specifications of my camera. And then, you know, there yes, there are certain things that we can do. Like one of the um, easiest things is to shoot in a flat color mode, like a D-Log mode. And that will give the um, the colorist to the editor um, more latitude with color um, so that they can try to get that to more closely match the, um, the footage of the cameras on the ground. Um, if you do have the luxury of shooting with like a heavy lift drone that can carry um, a camera that's like or equal to what you're shooting on the ground with, then that makes it much easier. Um, but there are fewer drone ops that have and can fly those kind of drones, so um, it might narrow narrow your field of potential applicants if you are looking to have somebody fly, say, you know, an Alexa Mini or like a Red Raven or, you know, something like that. Randy's written a bunch of articles about good techniques for drones and even how to apply for your own uh, FAA license to fly a drone commercially on nofilmschool.com. So we'll give you some links to some of those. And meanwhile, good luck, Stacy. And now for some movies and new series you can catch this weekend. Coming to broadcast and streaming is Rest in Power, the Trayvon Martin story. The docuseries premiered on July 30th, and it's running every Monday for six weeks. It's going to be broadcast in the U.S. on BET Paramount, but it's streaming for free online. So as I mentioned, it's a six-part docuseries that takes an in-depth look at the origin and aftermath of the 2012 shooting of Trayvon Martin, the anniversary of which was just this week. And then the subsequent trial of George Zimmerman, which sparked a national debate on race relations and revealed a deeply fractured and divided country. The series premiered at Tribeca in 2018. It was directed by Jenner First and Julia willoughby Nason, and executive produced by none other than Jay-Z. I've been seeing a lot of buzz about this one uh, in my Facebook feed, and people are really shook by it. It sounds, it sounds pretty powerful. I haven't gotten a chance to watch the first one yet, but I'm definitely planning on checking it out. And coming to HBO on August 4th is Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. This, of course, is Martin McDonough's award season standout, whose actors Francis McDormand and Sam Rockwell walked away with a couple of Oscars when all was said and done. 
The actors won Golden Globes for those performances as well, but McDonough also won the Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture Drama and Best Screenplay. All in all, the movie was nominated for 199 awards in its lifetime, and it won 110. Dang. That's more than me. It's a, yeah. Not more than me, but, you know, close. In the film, a mother personally challenges the local authorities to solve her daughter's murder by putting up three huge billboards outside of town, disgracing the outfit after they fail to catch the culprit. And what is that town called? Ebbing, Missouri. Ah, I get it. Is that where the three identical strangers are from, too? Oh, God, no, I, don't, I can't watch it. That's where John Gotti is from, Ebbing, Missouri. The gangster <laughs> that grew up in a small town really rose to prominence. He was the murderer. Sorry to spoil the oh, Now, our, our hashtag female filmmaker Friday that's taken off this year is finally being realized this weekend. We're going to go into three films coming to theaters directed by the ladies. It's true. And, and there is uh, a fourth. Uh, the, if anyone goes see The Spy Who Dumped Me, this weekend, that was also directed uh, by a female filmmaker whose name escapes me at the moment, but I don't know if you guys are going to go see that. So here's our resident female expert, Eric Lewis. I, 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 well, I Googled this a couple like, yesterday <laughs> for quickly. Uh, but yes, uh, up first, opening on August the 1st, so now playing in theaters, is Nico 1988. Uh, I'm a big fan of Susanna Nicharelli's film, which is all things Andy Warhol, The Velvet Underground, 1960s pop art, a story of an artist's late solo career, substance abuse, and more. Uh, it takes place over a brief period from 1986 through 1988, which is when Nico, who was a singer and was actually known in that era for working with The Velvet Underground, uh, suddenly passed away at the age of 49. But the film is by no means like a conventional biopic. It takes place exclusively in those three years as Nico goes on to promote her latest album. She grows frustrated with journalists who would rather focus on her Velvet Underground years, etc. Uh, it's really it's really powerful and it's not uh, dry in any, in any way. Uh, I loved hearing more about the singer and having the actress Trina Dryholm really do her own singing and really encapsulate that singer's presence. Uh, film is now playing at the recently refurbished Film Forum in New York City. We'll be expanding to further locations in the weeks to come. Uh, and I spoke with Susanna, which we will link to on the site, about quite a bunch of things, including archival material, shooting on film, and things like that. I have to say, I'm just going to jump in. I loved that interview that you did with her. I edited it yesterday. Um, and I definitely encourage folks to read it because it was really, really fascinating, just her whole approach to doing a biopic. And there was some, kind of some cool filmmaking trivia in there, too, like how she um, ended up using real uh, footage, eight millimeter footage shot by the avant-garde pioneer Jonas Mikas in the film so that instead of having an actress play young Nico, she had Nico play young Nico. Yeah. It's really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really uh, seamless in the actual finished film. And opening tomorrow on August 3rd is Never Going Back, which is also by a female filmmaker, Augustine Frizzell, uh, premiering at Sundance earlier this year, where it was picked up by those cool cats at 824. Uh, Never Going Back is Frizzell's debut feature and has been described as a super bad for women. And while that's not like a terrible nor unflattering uh, description, the film is certainly its own thing. Uh, I had described it as the ultimate 21st century stoner comedy, but I mean, we still have 82 years to go. <laughs> so, you know, I could be proven wrong. You know, it could be. Just, we'll see. Uh, but it's a comedy of, of drug-induced errors where our two female leads play friends who work dead-end jobs in a diner and just want to chill at the beach and get high. But guess what? Problems ensue that complicate this. Um, I'd, I'd written that one of the best running gags, for instance, involves an impending bowel movement. 
that's ultimate payoffs involves um, excrement, vomit, and semen. Uh, that would probably make John Waters blush. Uh, it's 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 pretty funny, and it's not usually my kind of humor, but I think it works here. Uh, I think John would love it. Uh, no, it's well, it is. I think it is John's kind of movie, actually, uh, and it's fun. It is fun. I spoke with Frizzell, uh, whose next film will be the apparently similarly themed Stoned Alone. <laughs> now, I don't know if it's like a direct sequel to Home Alone. Uh, or if it's just a movie about someone who is getting stoned by you know by themselves, um, it would who make, wants to watch that? I would. I think it does make more sense in Home Alone if the parents were stoned, and that's why they left little Kevin at the house when they went to the mm. airport because they just forgot that they had another child. Um, I'm still not sure this is real. It got greenlit last. I mean, they announced it last week. Yeah, so who's in it? Isn't like it. Ryan, Ryan Reynolds is Ryan involved. Reynolds, right? yeah. yeah. I wish it were a grown up Macaulay Culkin. Hey, that would make it I interesting. I mean, he's, he's not too busy, so we can be. You know, <laughs> still time. There's still time. Uh, but yeah, it's also very fun. So check that out. Also opening on August 3rd is the Miseducation of Cameron Post. This Sundance standout tells the story of a teenage girl who is forced into a gay conversion therapy center by her conservative guardians back in the year 1993, 25 years ago, quarter of a century. Uh, Chloe Grace Moretz stars as the said young lesbian, and the film was directed by Desiree Akavan. The film won the Grand Jury Prize for Best Dramatic Picture at Sundance, and Emily interviewed the DP, Ashley Connor, and that should be on the site early next week. Ashley's career has been on fire these past couple of years. Uh, she was actually featured last weekend with this film at the Lincoln Center's Female Gaze series that we mentioned on the show last week, and she's been on not one, but two No Film School podcasts, including our Sundance DP roundtable from this past January. And I, I think she's going to refuse to be on any more going forward. Two, I think, is the maximum. Uh, so we'll link to that in the podcast post as well. I'm just going to say third time's the charm. So I, I'm going to place a bed that Ashley will be at least one more time on the No Film School right. podcast. Did she shoot Madeline's Madeline? Yep. She, that's Maybe that's what i That's coming out next for. week. Oh, is it? I think that's coming out wow. next week. Wow. Yeah, that you... was one of the... I think she had two features at Sundance this year and maybe even more. But she, uh, yeah, she shot Madeline's Madeline and this yeah. film that both premiered at Sundance. Well, all right, let's get her back. And now moving on to some upcoming deadlines for events and grants and opportunities. The Middlebury Script Lab has a deadline on September 1st. It takes place January 11th to the 16th, 2019. Six emerging screenwriters, The Fellows, developing their first or second script will be invited to spend one week at Middlebury in the Champlain Valley of Vermont, tuition free. They will live and work in individual comfortable rooms and find their inspiration in the crisp Vermont outdoors. There are town shuttles that can take you up to the mountain for a ski break if you want. And writers, producers, script consultants, and agents are the advisors who will be offering their mentorship in workshops, master classes, and one-on-one -on -one conferences. And uh, Ryan was a advisor. Ryan Koo was an advisor a couple of years ago. That's right. Fun fact. Ryan is a Middlebury alum. And, you know, it just seems like a good place to go in January. <laughs> <laughs> if you like to be cold. Um, I mean, hey, I guess, you know, we go to Sundance in January. Um, I'll also mention about this one, just if you're interested in applying, you can't just have an idea for a script. I believe you need to submit uh 10 pages of a completed screenplay. It's yeah. 10 pages, a treatment, and like something something else. Yeah, and then it, it's like you have to fill out the application, the treatment, um, synopsis, and yeah, submit 10 pages. But they will then contact you by mid-October to let you know if you're a finalist. If you're a finalist, then you have to, you have like three days to submit the entire script. 
Uh, so you should and have that. And scripts must be written in three days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you should have that script prepared. Don't wait to find out if you're <laughs> going to be a finalist because you have to turn that thing around within three days. And another deadline for you is the Alter Cine Foundation with a deadline on August 15th. Every year, the foundation awards a grant of 10000 Canadian dollars and a few 5000 Canadian dollars to some filmmakers to assist in the production of a documentary project. The grant is aimed at young video and filmmakers born and living in Africa, Asia, or Latin America who want to direct a film in the language of their choice. So, if you're from one of those countries and want Canadian dollars, this is a grant for you. And we've got some festival deadlines, too. On August 5th, the Evolucion Mallorca International Film Festival, which is only pronounced exactly like that. This one takes place at the end of October in the Balearic Islands of Spain. It includes screenings, networking events, panels, and workshops every single day for six days with up-and-coming filmmakers and established industry professionals. It attracts over 4,000 attendees from over 32 countries. How cool. It also holds a special screening in Los Angeles called See the Winners for Industry Folks. It's an Academy Award qualifying festival, and of course, it's on the Movie Maker Magazine Top 50 list. Top 50 of what? I don't know, but it's Top 50 something. <laughs> it made it. And uh, the deadline for this one is August 5th. And on August 6th, there's a deadline for a festival called the Sundance Film Festival. This is the early bird deadline for both films and New Frontier VR projects. It takes place in Park City, Utah from January 24th to February 3rd, 2018. And I don't think we really have to tell you what Sundance is because we've talked about it a lot on this podcast, right? Do you want to describe Sundance? It's like this, you know, it's like an up-and-coming festival. Um, it's it's gaining status. It might be worth applying. In the Balearic Islands of Spain, yeah. I believe. I no, be it's in Middlebury, Vermont in January. It's really cold, but you can ski. That would be beautiful. Well, the good news is for anyone who's applying uh, to this festival at the early bird deadline, they will not be competing with my project because I didn't make the early bird deadline for Sundance. So... Well, you didn't make the early bird deadline, maybe, but there's still a regular deadline and an extended deadline. That's true. There is. So you guys out there might have some stiff competition from the guy. Literally. I do mean stiff. Yep. Okay. So anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And on lucky August 13th, there's a deadline for the Indie Memphis Festival. This one takes place November 1st to the 5th in Guess Where, Memphis, Tennessee. It's the extended deadline, so it's your last chance. Uh, last year, the Indie Memphis Festival, probably because of the mention on our podcast, attracted a record-setting attendance for nearly 200 feature films, shorts, and music videos. And it also has a strong focus on music, kind of like South by Southwest. So it connects filmmakers and festival attendees to the live music scene that pulses through the city. Sounds really fun. Also, they're one of the only festivals in the world to feature live music in theater before every screening. So I know we have several listeners who are in the 18 and under set. Um, And, you know, it might be hard to figure out which opportunities are right for you or if you can even qualify. For a lot of them, you do need to either be a college student or be, uh, you know, legal age to to enter. And so um, our wonderful writer, Oakley Anderson Moore, put together a list of festivals just for you. It's called Are You a Filmmaker Who's 18 Years Old or Younger? Here are 18 great film festivals for you. So we're going to link to that in the podcast post, too, so that you'll know about some uh, opportunities that are exclusively meant to showcase your films. For you. For you. 
And now moving on to this week's weekly words of wisdom. Wisdom, wisdom. I've been trying to like talk about this one for a few weeks now because it came out a few weeks ago. I thought it was a good article, but you guys have just had so much wisdom. We had too much wisdom. And this week we were like, it's August. Let's give John the wisdom wand. Thank you guys. So very grateful for the chance to uh, sound intelligent. So this week's work. (laughs) Well, you tried. You tried. Back to us. What is it called again? The weekly words of wisdom? Yeah. This week's weekly words yeah, of wisdom. How many episodes have you edited of this? <laughs> What's it called? I think it's like 248. Where mm-hmm. are we? Who are you? So a couple weeks ago, like I was saying, I uh, talked to the Short of the Week founder. I guess it's just called Short of the Week, not the Short of the Week. Uh, many of you might know this website. It's an online curation website that takes a short a week and features it on it. Uh, their founder was a man named Andrew Allen, and he talked to us about his great new guide for short filmmakers who are trying to navigate the festival scene called Be Everywhere All at Once, The New Path for Filmmakers. And he shed a ton of insight from all his experience as a short film curator. We asked him if there's truly a winner in this online versus festival debate that's going on, or if one is actually better than the other for short filmmakers, and here's what he said. Quote, As a filmmaker, sidestep the debate and just ask what each outlet can do for your film. Festivals are great for experiencing a live audience reaction to your film and building relationships with other filmmakers and programmers. Online is great at reaching a much wider audience. In parentheses, a thousand times. So that means like a thousand times as much as you would probably get at a festival. And it's good for generating more serendipitous connections. It's also better at driving industry interest in your work as more and more decision makers are foregoing the travel to festivals and finding emerging filmmakers online. The best release strategy we've seen combines the best of both. You no longer have to think of festivals and online as separate runs, but as part of an integrated strategy. You can premiere at a top-tier festival, go online a day later, and then continue to screen at other festivals. The boundaries are now gone. So that's pretty good news for filmmakers. (laughs) That's exciting. I wonder how much of that applies to features or episodics as well. You know, if there's still sort of a longer window for well, those. It's different because, you know, short films are sort of designed for the internet in a way that features aren't. Uh, I mean, features would probably go straight to streaming, I'd imagine. Uh, whereas short films are, you know, kind of all over the place. YouTube, Vimeo, um, Short of the Week. So. Right, and I guess a lot of festivals still require at least regional premieres for features, whereas they sort of expect that shorts would be online. Yeah, it's a little bit more of a wild, wild west scenario, I guess, for shorts there. Interesting moment. Thanks, John. That was very wise. So we'll link to that post with even more insights from Short of the Week's founder uh, in this week's podcast post. And now for shout outs. Shout out to you, John, for... Knowing when other people are being wise. We should have like a shout out sound. Like shout out, hey, 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 hey. I want shout. I still want sound effects for every section. Yeah. John's working on it. You guys can go ahead and send me the sound effects that you'd like. It's like zoing. Let's do it. (laughs) It's like something zany. And now for shout outs. Zoing. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Clown car just pulling into the station. Honk, honk. So a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that this year's Emmy nominations had just been announced. And this week, the News and Docs Emmy noms were made public. And that list is just chock full of friends of No Film School and folks that we've had on the podcast and interviewed on the site. 
I'm not going to mention all of them, but here is somewhere we have uh, specifically filmmaker interviews. So in the outstanding current affairs documentary, Almost Sunrise and Last Man in Aleppo were nominated. In the politics and government documentary category, Forever Pure, which we have the filmmaker on a podcast. In investigative documentary, Solitary Inside Red Onion State Prison, Hell Yeah, Christy Jacobson, a director I love. In outstanding nature documentary and best documentary, we have Chasing Coral, and we have at least three posts on the site about uh, about that, including some of the fascinating information about how it was shot underwater. Uh, and in the outstanding new approaches category, which is interesting, it's even a new category for kind of VR and immersive projects, Zero Days VR was nominated, and uh, our good friends from Scatter got that nomination, so we are pretty stoked. And again, I'll link to a whole bunch of posts related to these nominations in this week's podcast post. Also, the prestigious Category A film festival in Switzerland, Locarno, kicked off last night and runs through August 11th. Man, I'd really like to go one day. Meanwhile, I want to give this fest a special shout out for following in the footsteps of Cannes and Anansi earlier this year by having its chief sign a pledge ensuring gender equality and inclusion in programming. According to Variety, the pledge doesn't mandate any specific editorial or strategic choices, so it doesn't say, you know, you have to have X number of films by women or minorities, but it does call on the festival to issue statistics on the number of films submitted, be transparent about the members of the selection and programming committees in order to prevent any doubt about a lack of diversity or parity, and set up a timetable of goals to ensure an even gender ratio within the respective terms. So you go, Locarno. Mm -hmm. Or we should go. I'd like to go. So we might be in Switzerland next Monday, <laughs> but you can still listen to next Monday's podcast. What do we got, John? Next Monday's podcast will be one from our reporter, Oakley Anderson Moore, who sat down with filmmaker Alejandro Montoya Marin to discuss his experience on Robert Rodriguez's show, Rebel Without a Crew. The show gave five filmmakers a shot at making a feature film using only $7,000 in 14 days replicating Rodriguez's own first film, the El Mariachi he made for $7,000. So on Monday, you can learn how to make a film for 7K yourself. Also, I think she included our longtime writer, Chris Boone, on that podcast to kind of like talk about the whole scene down there because he's part of that Southwest filmmaking scene. So it's going to be very cool. So this was an episode chock full of information. Wow, even for us. And uh, you can read about all of it um, in links in the podcast post, as I've mentioned, and also brand new articles and original content every single day at nofilmschool.com uh, about the art and craft of filmmaking and new gear that's coming out, etc., etc. So we hope that you will check out the site and keep listening. You can find the No Film School podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you are using an iOS device and iTunes, please give us a five-star rating. Sorry, guys, my brain is melting a little bit today. I I can't go through an episode without saying how hot is it, it is. Is it hot in here? It's really hot. But, guys, so we, hot. Did, we did get through an episode without a creepy dude corner. We did. Well, I mean, technically, there's always a creepy dude corner just because- They're in know, there. But, I mean, we didn't add here. some yeah. of this week. No. I mean, we could have, but we didn't. No. Do we, the only creepy dudes here are the ones who you know and love. That are right on the payroll. The yes. And if you want to <laughs> keep in touch with them on Twitter- I'm at Eric Lures. I'm Jizzcam. 
<laughs> that, oh. that probably isn't a count, so you know you can probably follow it's it. It's still there. I oh, told oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I said my friend bought it. Yes. That's Instagram though, isn't it? Didn't buy it, but oh. yeah, that's Instagram. All right, my real Twitter name is at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim 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 Jim. I'm at Liz Film. We are all at No Film School, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Ciao.